this little parable, I say this about a lot of things, but this little parable is probably one of the most important little parables that Jesus told. And it's important because in it, like Jesus is, is going after our hearts in this parable, in a, in a space that I think sometimes we, we pretend like we don't roll in this space or we feel like we don't have a problem uh, with what's going on here. But this little story is about uh, who is justified and who is not. Who, who is fit for the kingdom of God? Who is fit for eternal life in the presence of, uh, of God? And to be justified is to have a standing before God of being in right relationship with him, of having no offense between us and God. To be justified is to be declared acquitted of anything that could condemn you, of anything that could cut you off from life in the kingdom of God, life in the presence of God, and its blessing and its joy and its internal inheritance. So I think it is pretty important what Jesus is saying in this little parable and we need to listen to what Jesus says justifies a person before God so let's pray and then we'll get at it loving God we thank you uh, for this morning for this gathering of people who know you and love you and understand what it is to live uh, before you and with you and um, just pray that we would uh, appreciate that more and more that we would share life more and more across those lines we look forward to a cup of tea and coffee later where we get to share our lives together where we get to discuss maybe what we've heard but as we sit now with your spirit uh just be at work in our hearts we've heard john read this passage to us and we pray your spirit would be at work in us uh as we do um maybe confronting us, conforming us, and warming our hearts with affection for you as we seek to understand your word today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in my office, uh, there is a little grey folder. And here it is. It is probably the most important folder uh, in my room, primarily because it contains all of my accreditation stuff. It's a historic library, if you like, a catalogue of documents that contain pretty much all of my achievements in life and all of my uh, current uh, personal development undertakings. They're all sort of recorded in here and stacked up in here. And it's there because it's a quick reference guide uh, for when the BUV like to audit their pastors. They send you out a little email that says you've been randomly uh, selected to be audited and then they come out, which is always nice. I like to get a visit from my colleagues at head office, so that's, that's good. And they come out and they see whether I've got a current working with children's check, and they come out and they see whether I've got a current police check in the last two years, whether my marriage training is current. They see whether or not that I have a signed uh, agreement with a spiritual mentor, a, um, a pastoral supervisor. They want to see that I've signed my code of ethics, that I've done at least two PD workshops in the last 12 months, and, and on and on and on and on it goes. So this little grey folder I keep to justify my accreditation so that I can get one of these little things handed to me, a little card that says I'm an accredited pastor. It also serves if I ever need to apply for a job. It, it fills out the data in a, in a potential job application. It populates 
uh, the content of what the BUV calls a pastor's pro forma, and you send it off to some church and, and they try and work out whether you're worthwhile. But then it has another little uh, role in my life, and it is that it's a, a resume of my own personal validation. I like to read through this little grey folder every now and again just to remind myself of all the hard work and diligence that I've been about. It's got everything in it from my VCE certificate, my trade certificate, along with a bunch of awards that remind me that I literally was the best at what I did. It has my Bachelor of Ministries, my Grad Dip of Ministries, my ordination certificate, a supervised theological field education certificates, my sports chaplaincy training, my marriage certificate, and on and on and on it goes. You thought you guys just had a washed up bricklayer, didn't you? Don't you worry. It declares how I defied various school reports and predictions from my peers about what I'd amount to in life. It serves to set me apart from other mere mortals who settled to be defined by their limitations and their environments. I like to use it to, to pump up my tires, to reassure me and justify myself of my approval, of my status, of my worth. It's a lovely little reassuring uh, pat on the back, a warm, a warm blanket for my confidence. I imagine we all have little grey folders somewhere, a resume, a list of things that distinguishes and comforts us with self-affirmation. We fill them with our marriages, our careers, our sporting, our, our academic achievements, our attendance records at church, our giving, our serving, whatever we need to, to, that allows us to set us apart, to stand approved in the crowd. And it justifies who we are and why we should pat ourselves on the back. And that's not always a bad thing. Like for a kid who was told, hey, you're heading to jail, but at least you'll get three meals a day. Thank you, Irene Webster. I clocked you. I remember your words. Jesus is still working on my forgiveness capacities. But celebrating a different outcome isn't bad until it becomes an ultimate thing. Until it becomes our means, my means of justifying myself, a means by which I claim my right to salvation, approval and acceptance from God, a means through which I can claim his love and approval and move out from under his wrath until it becomes something that I use to feel better about being better. It's no longer there goes I, but by the grace of God. But look at what I've done that others haven't been able to do. It reveals a position of heart that hasn't encountered how it is uh, that this present work of the kingdom of God is received and then expressed. It reveals a heart that, that is self-righteous, not a heart that has received righteousness, not a heart that has actually encountered Jesus. A position of a heart that is literally unfit for the kingdom of God and for the future establishment of the kingdom of God. The tendency within us to a works-based righteousness, a self-developed resume of approval 
is deeply ingrained in, in each of us. We just, we just flow to it naturally. We, we just go there. It's the DNA of a resume of justification that does not have the grace of God found in Jesus as its referees at the bottom of all of the content. In our passage today, Jesus is warning us against this natural tendency, this this human nature to the piling up of our accreditation and using our resume as a means to claim approval and right relationship with God. Devoid of his grace, devoid of his divine grace. And, and in that, he says, evidence. The evidence that we know we're in that space is our tendency to feel better about ourselves in relationship to others. In fact, Jesus reveals that this approach exposes that you are not in a right relationship with God. And some self-examination needs to take place. With this little linking phrase at the top of our passage today he also told this parable Luke is letting us know that Jesus is still addressing the same audience we're still in the same uh, audience from our parable with the persistent widow the unjust judge and then Luke gives us this heads up about the target audience of this parable some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, and, and treated others with contempt To see yourself as righteous means to rest and to trust in your conduct and performance as meeting the standards that God desires for life before him, uh, before others in his kingdom. It means that you are in right relationship with God. It means that you have never loved something more than him. That you have never pursued something more than him God has always held the highest affection of your heart anything less is what the Bible calls sin and deserves God's provoked position of wrath righteousness also includes being in a right relationship with your neighbors meaning that you've never lied said something that wasn't quite accurate to someone for gain or out of self-preservation you've never taken something from someone else uh, in a deceitful or unlawful manner. You've never wished someone dead. You've never wished to take advantage of someone else. You've never wished for relational gratification from someone other than your spouse. means you've never taken joy in bad things when they come to people that you don't like because you think they deserve it. Or it means this, that you've never got upset when something good happens to someone that you don't like because you think they didn't deserve it. That particular thing is coveting. It's saying that God's organizing of the universe is flawed, that you've got a better program of how things should operate. It's an accusation that God's rule and reign isn't fair. So when you do that, you're actually hating God and your neighbor at the same time. Righteousness also involves how you view creation. You see it as a gift from God to be enjoyed, to be nurtured and cared for, not to be worshipped and abused. And righteousness leads to not seeing yourself as more worthy than others, which is what contempt is. Contempt is not kind of being hostile or angry. Contempt is superiority. Righteousness 
has a nature of humility, not, not hubris, not, not pride. Now, if you did the mental exercise while I kind of ran through that description, you would know that no one could possibly tick all of those boxes. It's just not possible. And if you're sitting there thinking, I tick all those boxes, just come up here, we'll worship you instead of Jesus. But apparently Jesus was of the belief that some of us do. Some of us see our incomplete resumes as an adequate offering of righteousness to God because they're better than other resumes that are out there. We take the incomplete content of our grey folders and, and to convince God. We push it before a perfect and holy God and we say, hey, compared to others, I'm not so bad. In fact, you're kind of lucky to have someone like me on the team. Well, just like in the previous parable, there are two main characters in this one. Two men who are both going up to the temple to pray. And again, these two characters occupy uh, opposite ends of the social spectrum. One is a Pharisee, and there's no surprise there. We're not surprised to see him going to the temple for prayer. Pharisees were held in high esteem uh, for, their, for their practice of life and their adherence to the law. They are the best of society and the hope of Israel. They represent everything that is good and they represent everything that is right. And we expect him in the story. Today he would be a renowned, a renowned theologian like a Tim Keller, Don Carson type of figure a respected elder in the church, a beloved pastor, someone of high standing, someone of, of, of impeccable moral behavior, someone that we revere, someone that we'd love to emulate. The other is a tax collector. And this would have been a shocking development, a shocking inclusion in the story, as tax collectors are not known for their regard toward Israel's religious identity, towards Israel's religious piety and practice. In fact, they are seen as people aiding in its destruction. They have sold out their identity in order to purchase the rights from Rome to raise funds that Rome uses to control its citizens and oppress and abuse and dehumanize some of its subjects. Tax collectors pulled money out of families uh, who were beaten into subjugation so that they would stay that way. We simply don't have uh, a category for this kind of despised uh, person um, in our experience of life. We don't, we don't have anyone that kind of constantly moves towards us like this. His appearance at the temple is a shock. A praying tax collector is a contradiction in terms. But make no mistake, in this in this parable, the Pharisee is the good guy. He's, he's the, the hero. He's the good guy. And the tax collector is the bad guy. We have a bias of sympathy towards tax collectors and a contempt for the Pharisees because of our familiarity now in Luke with, with the hostility that, that Pharisees have towards Jesus and the, and the acceptance that the tax collectors seem to have towards Jesus. But that bias does not exist in this parable. The Pharisee is the good guy. The tax collector is the bad guy. And they have both come to pray. Unsurprisingly, the Pharisee 
is completely comfortable in a religious setting and immediately takes up a position of nearness uh, to God and distance from people. Most commentators see Luke's description here as the Pharisee actually coming as close as he can, positioning himself as close as he can to the Holy holy of Holies, as close as he was permitted. His comfort and his confidence no doubt comes from the content of his prayer (coughs) captured in verses 11 and 12. In some ways, as Jesus reveals the content of this prayer, actually respect for the Pharisee increases as we listen (coughs) to the content of this prayer. He is grateful that he is not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. His moral standards are off the charts. This is probably the kind of prayer that the Apostle Paul could have prayed according to his claims in Philippians 3. He doesn't take anything that's not his. He doesn't withhold justice from anyone and he's faithful to his wife. Full, visible compliance with the law. That's our Pharisee. Now, Pharisee friend outlines his acts of piety. Fasting twice a week. The law stipulates that you only need to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. You find that in Leviticus 16. So this man was fasting a tad over a hundred times more than the law required. Not only that, he made a point of tithing his entire income, setting aside one-tenth of everything he received, whereas the law only required you to tithe certain produce, certain income from produce, but not other forms of income. Some of you are like, I want that passage. Don't worry, Jesus threw that one out the door. He's more like the Pharisee, actually. If this dude found 10 10 cents, just found 10 cents lying on the footpath, he would pick that up. Nine of it would go to him and one cent of that would go to the temple. And because of this, the Pharisee feels not one hint of need or deficiency. There's no sense of pain or inadequacy. His activities just cover up any of the cracks, any of the possible wounds in his life. There's just gladness that God has seen fit to reward his devotion with a capacity to self-develop and and continue to self-actualize. Kind of God helps those who help themselves, right? That is not a verse in the Bible, by the way. It's probably the complete opposite of the Bible. But this Pharisee's prayer would have had everyone just wishing that they had his resume, that they could pray a prayer like this and that they could be as blessed as him. However, the Pharisee is seen by Jesus down in verse 14 as unrighteous and as going home unjustified. For all of his devotion, the Pharisee's approach of heart was unrighteous in the sight of God. None of his pious acts improved his standing with God because God is never impressed with merely external religion. God does not base his judgment on simply outward acts of religious devotion, but on an inward disposition of the heart. So when the Pharisee was finished, he went home just as he came, unchanged, unjustified, and with this position of contempt, this self-understanding of superiority. 
And God knew his heart and on that basis declared him unrighteous. What's so wrong? We, we, we said, like, as we listen to this prayer, that, that we begin to actually be more impressed with this Pharisee. So what was so wrong with his prayer? We, if we examine the glue that's between the content of his prayer, pride, self-sufficiency, devoid of the divine grace emerges as the main issue. While the prayer begins appropriately addressing God, the rest of it is spent talking about himself. In two short sentences, verses 11 to 12, he manages to kind of self-congratulate five times. I, 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 I. To translate verse 11 more literally, we'd have the Pharisee standing, prayed about himself, or even prayed to himself. He's not talking to God at all. The object of our prayer, the object of our prayers reveals where our true relationships lie. For the Pharisee prayer was more about self-actualizing, self-affirming, self-justifying exercise than it was about seeking God on all the fronts and all the spaces of his life. And then Jesus lets us listen into the prayer of the tax collector who not surprisingly stood far off, perhaps just on the fringe of the temple. Bad people know they are bad but not always in a bad way. The idea that he could come into God's presence to pray does not fill him with pride or comfort, but with humility and need. His prayer, while being the same in the beginning, is radically different to that of the Pharisees. And no one's shocked or surprised. It should be. What could he possibly have to offer God as being acceptable and worthy of approval? What could this person who is far from God's law, far from God's desire of how life should be lived, possibly have to say to God? And on what basis should God listen to this tax collector? And I think this is the general feeling of most people have around approaching God, that he wouldn't be all that interested in us until we look vaguely like the Pharisee, until we have maybe just one certificate of self-improvement to put in our little grey folder. But it is the approach of the tax collector that God approves and blesses and justifies. The tax collector's prayer began in the same way that, that the Pharisees, by, by standing apart from others and addressing God. Only it's not because he feels superior but because he feels vulnerable. The tax collector feels seen. He feels known to the very depths of his soul. And he knows that he has nothing to hide behind. And it's not a resume that he wants to push across the altar, but rather it is something that he knows that he must receive divine mercy from God. Standing far off, the tax collector is a, a posture of reverence and humility and he displays actions of repentance and need. His prayer has three components. The holiness of God. He can't even lift his eyes to heaven. The condition of a sinner and the mercy between the two. 
The most striking feature of the tax collector's prayer is the request of mercy. It's a verb that means to atone for sin by means of blood sacrifice. Like the little Greek word that we translate into mercy captures all of that. It's a very particular word. And most commentators spend a lot of time and ink explaining how this man's plea for mercy should be understood as a calling on the temple. Like he's there, the temple's in the background, everything's going on, and he's invoking everything that's happening there. The system of sacrifices for forgiveness that's the backdrop to this prayer. A good place to get a picture of, of what this system of sacrifices is like is to just... Go to Leviticus 16. So in Luke 18 there, where you see this word mercy, just put a little thing that says, hey, I should read Luke 16, uh, Leviticus 16. And there you'll find the description of the mercy seat and how sacrifices are made. God provided a system designed to allow for substitutes, usually bulls and goats, to represent people's sin. And how, the, and how their sacrifice and the shedding of their blood symbolizes the cleansing of people with a, with a covering of innocence. What scholars and biblical authors called propitiation, which just means to be pardoned, to, 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 be, to be covered over with innocence. And how this system also provoked the turning away of God's wrath towards sin, what biblical authors and scholars call expiation. The turning away of wrath, of judgment. In sum, uh, it left people justified before God, out of God's provision, out of his mercy. This was the religious fabric. This was the religious practice of Israel and the people of God that God had provided for them. This, This system of sacrificial provision. God had placed and preserved a system of substitutional atoning provision that dealt with sin on the basis of God's mercy. A system that symbolically but effectively covered over sinful people with a pardon and turned away God's wrath due to being satisfied with the substitute. This is the picture of divine mercy. The tax collector is asking for God's mercy, not on the basis of his deserved goodness, but on the basis of God's commitment to be merciful to sinners through the sacrifices, through the whole system that's the backdrop, that's in the temple at the moment that he makes this prayer. To put it more precisely, the tax collector prayed for God to be mercy seated, to take a posture of mercy toward him. This is what this little Greek word refers to. The tax collector is asking God to atone for his sins covering his guilt and protecting him from eternal judgment. The tax collector rests in God's promise of provision to those who can humbly see their need for it. Well, Jesus finishes this little parable with this stunning revelation that it's the tax collector. Like we're so used to this, we don't get the shock of it. It's the tax collector that goes home justified. He has done what is right. And it's the Pharisee, by contrast, who goes home outside of God's favour and acceptance, having done what God detests, offered pious prayers from a proud, self-sufficient heart that really doesn't see any need 
for God. God's just there as a prop almost. They both leave shocked. Both are left, we assume, contemplating how it is that God does business with humanity, how it is that people are justified. Mike McKinley points out in his, in his little commentary that it's hard to overstate how shocking and revolutionary Jesus' conclusion is. The justified one is the sinner who approaches God on the basis of his mercy rather than the good man who approaches God on the basis of his own merit. Jesus' parable, Jesus' little story here, destroys the fundamental principle of pretty much every single religion on planet Earth. Like if you push this story before a Hindu or Buddhist or a Muslim, they're all, they're all rolling with the Pharisee and his good works. No one is siding with the tax collector. Jesus is warning that the pride and self-exaltation that would dare to hold up our own goodness as a reason for God's love will actually lead to terrible humbling. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the environment of heart that is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the soil in the heart of justification. The parable wants us to think about who it is that is actually righteous in God's sight, who it is that is truly part of the kingdom of God. The parable is told so that those who are trusting at any level in their own self-sufficiency would realize that the only way sinful people can be justified is via the mercy provided by God, not incomplete resumes offered by people. Jesus' goal is not to out a certain group of people like the Pharisees as having the market on being self-righteous, but, but a particular type of approach. All people are in danger of this kind of, of othering, of this kind of self-promotion. Jesus wants, to be thinking, wants us to be thinking about our thinking, to examine our approach and how we seek to understand uh, the way we are justified before God. According to Luke, Jesus interprets this parable in a way that idealizes and contrasts the different approaches of these two men. One claims superior status for himself by comparing himself with a, and separating himself from others. The other makes no claim to status at all, but acknowledges his position as a sinner who can only take refuge in the benevolence of God. One convinced by his self-righteousness, dependent on his own piety, the other asks for, asks, this one asks for and receives nothing from God. The other comes to God with humility and receives what he asks for, compassion and restoration. At the center of the Christian faith is not the humiliation of you and I but the humiliation of our God. The story of God's ultimate provision of mercy as he seats himself towards us from a cross. Here is where sinners are covered by the substitutional death of Jesus as he takes the penalty for sin 
so that those who seek mercy have a legitimate place, like a genuine, legitimate place to go and flee. Here is where the wrath of God towards sin and all the ways in which we have loved things more than God, trusted in things more than God, is turned away from us and poured out on Jesus. This is God not just designing mercy, but being mercy. This is how God declares you justified through his actions, not ours. Sinners cannot be saved by what they do. Sinners can only be saved by what God has done in Christ. In other words, sinners can be saved only by grace and can be justified only through God's mercy. That's why Paul writes in, in the letter of Romans is he's just summing up all of the evidence from the life of Jesus and he wants to put it into a letter and, and push it across the table to the Romans. He says, for all have sinned, have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation, as the, as the covering and the turning away of God's wrath by his blood. To be received by faith. That was to show that God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Good news. There is no one who does not qualify for grace and mercy. There is no one who isn't covered by the offer of justification before God found in Jesus Christ. All you need is the approach of a tax collector a willingness to receive from God and not just a grey folder stuffed with prayers of self-promotion. Let's pray. Loving God, we hear this little story and it's so counterintuitive because we are so wound up to want to put something down on the table that says, here's why I deserve to be saved. Here's why I deserve to be loved. And yet all, anything that we could put down on the table is corrupted with our own contempt, our own sense of being better. The only thing that we can stand in is the way you move towards us. A perfect and holy God has moved towards us in the person of Jesus, whose perfect and holy life stands as this substitutional offering for us, that this, this position of mercy and grace towards us. And our only hope and our only trust is in that. Our prayer here this morning is that more and more we would drink deeply of that reality, that claim, that our lives would be based in that. And that the kind of freedom would come out of that to celebrate. Uh, a change of narrative, a different outcome that comes about from encountering you. That our, our folder would just be full of trophies of your grace in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.